I will be reading from Matthew 13, verses 53 through 56. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching to the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? Thank you. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you got here just a little bit late, uh, you missed some introductory comments about that 27 days of prayer uh, outline that you find as a handout in your announcement sheet. And really what we're doing is asking the congregation to pray for 27 days and directing you each day in the subject matter of those prayers. There is a, there's kind of an overarching theme as well as some scriptures and a short description. And we'd like for you during that day, beginning in the morning and throughout the day, to go over those scriptures and to read them and maybe commit them to heart. Um, uh, talk with them with your, your spouse and with your children when you sit down or do homework together or eat together, whatever it might be that you're doing, and to spend some time going over these different subjects of prayer for the next 27 days. And we're looking for our church to be really, really blessed in the next month. This morning we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 13 that, uh, that Henson just read for us. That's open our Bibles there, get those handouts out, and let's ask God to bless us as we get ready to study His Word. Father, as, as we think about all of the rain that has come into our community and into our lives over the last couple of days, it's just a reminder of how saturated our lives are with your blessings and even more so with your presence. Our prayer, Father, is to never forget that you are our Father, our Creator. You are the God who shepherds our souls. You're the rock that we stand on, you're the source of all blessing, and you're the one who loves us and guides us in this life through the rocky places and through the smooth places, Father, you're always there. And as such, Father, we want to, we want to contour our lives around the centrality of your presence in all of the universe. We want our lives to, to be connected to what it is that you're doing in, in your world. And we want to live as your son Jesus has taught us to live. And we want to believe deeply, Father, as we follow the examples of the apostles. And what we ask, Father, is for your spirit to help us and your word to help us in this regard. And so as we study your word, and it's primarily this nativity passage, Father, we're asking you to give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we turn and face you wholly and completely with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Bible teacher that, uh, that passed away a few years ago, right up uh, Highway 35 in Dallas, a longtime professor of theology, a fellow by the name of Walter Wink said, if Jesus had never lived... We could never have invented him. If Jesus had never lived, we could not have been able to invent him. 
if we think about just one little tiny slice of the life of Jesus as it's revealed to us in the Gospels, this nativity text, the, the, the story of the birth of Jesus, is one of those places where we just see the astounding presence and work of God in creation. I mean, think just for a moment how astonishing the nativity story is. You have angels popping in and out and telling human beings, do not be afraid, like that's really going to happen. You have uh, babies miraculously being born to an older woman who has been barren all of her life, never been able to have children. You have uh, the miracle of the birth of Christ to a virgin who had never been with a man. You have a priest, I mean a priest for goodness sake, who receives a, a, a vision, a face-to-face encounter with the angel Gabriel in the holy of holy places, and he is struck uh, mute and in silence for nine months because he did not believe. And this is a priest. You have a star traveling from the east to the west, guiding some Chaldean uh, magi, some wise men, to a little, little, tiny town, like trying to find, you know, Poteet, if you've never been to Texas. As an angel, and my apologies to the people that live in Poteet, I love the strawberries, they're wonderful. But trying to find Bethlehem in the middle of Israel, they needed this star to guide them. I mean, think about the profound tragedy of the two-year-old boys and, and younger who are massacred because there's a king who is insane and insanely jealous. The whole thing just beggars belief. Think about that hymn that William Cooper wrote a couple of centuries ago, God moves in a mysterious way. Finish it with me. His wonders to perform. His wonders to perform. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be look, uh, thinking about, leading up to Christmas Day, we're going to be thinking about the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to begin in sort of an odd place. We're going to begin in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it's Samuel going to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of, of Israel after the epic failure of Saul. And so in that chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord tells Samuel, I need you to go to Bethlehem. And he gets to the house of Jesse that the Lord has directed him to. And he says, I need to see all of your sons. One of them is going to be the next king of Israel. And Jesse calls the boys in. He begins to parade them in front of the old prophet. First there's Eliab and then Abinadab and then Shema. There's seven boys all together. They parade in front of Samuel. And the word of the Lord does not come to Samuel that any of these boys are going to be the next king. And this is kind of odd to Samuel because all of these boys are tall and they're good looking and they're athletic. They get good grades. They just seem to be the cream of the crop. And it's here that God says something that's just startling and astonishing to Samuel and to us. Samuel's confused. And God says to him, don't consider his height or his appearance, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. The Lord does not look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the, say it, church, heart. So Samuel asks Jesse, are there any other boys that you know, we haven't seen yet? And Jesse says, yes, there's the youngest one. He's out in the pasture, out on the back 40 someplace chasing the sheep. Samuel says, call him in. 
And when David comes in, the word of the Lord comes to Samuel and says, this is it, rise and anoint him, this is the one. Now, David, in the eyes of his father, doesn't look very much, doesn't appear to be very much of a king. But in the eyes of the Lord, who looks at the heart, what does he see in David? A man after his own heart. Well, there are a couple of lessons there, obviously, and you've heard most of them. The first lesson, and the most obvious, is that the heart is more important than outward appearance, right? We know that from the Sermon on the Mount and other places that the apostles have written and Jesus has taught, and as well as Old Testament scriptures, that, that righteousness is something that is generated from the inside and works its way out. But a second lesson, and sometimes not so obvious, is that the choosing, the kind of men and women that God chooses, tells us as much about God as it does about the person that's being chosen. For example, Think about all of the patience. Think about all of the patience that God demonstrated as he moved a human being from being saturated in a polytheistic, idol-ridden culture, lived all of his life among those that did not recognize the one true God, the heavens and the earth, and moved him to a place where he is now known to us as the father of the faith, Abraham. And then think about God's power. When he chooses, here's this guy that is on the run. He has committed murder, and he's on the run, and he's been on the lam for 40 years. He's out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, he's just on the other side of nowhere, and he's a, a, a shepherd, and he's out in the desert where nobody can find him. And then all of a sudden, God calls this guy to go back to a, a gigantic superpower nation and to liberate his people from slavery, a guy by the name of Moses. We jump over to the New Testament, and we think about the power and the patience of God in working out all of his purposes. Sometimes we get a little frustrated. Sometimes we get a little annoyed. Sometimes we're disappointed that the purposes of God and the things that we would love to see God achieving in our community to his glory and to our blessing, they don't get done very easily. But then we think about here is the most vicious and violent and antagonistic uh, man in the first century to the church on the planet and we think about his 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 ease in which he's okay with christians being stoned to death he's even willing while they're pounding stephen into the ground with those stones he says fellas let's not get your your coats dirty or dusty i'll hold them for you while you do the deed he is so antagonistic towards the church that he's even willing to take a road trip to Damascus in order to drag men and women and children from the churches and to punish them. And then all of a sudden God, in his great power and in great patience and in great faithfulness to his purposes, takes this Saul, later known to be Paul, and turns him into the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Which brings us to Joseph the great-great-great-great-grandson of King David who is chosen by God to be the earthly father of Jesus. Joseph, Joseph will have to pursue 
the heart of God the way that his grandfather did in order to be a part of the stream, to be in the middle of the stream of God's will for his life. And this is where we ask the question, what kind of man would God choose to be the earthly father of Jesus? There's not much that's written about Joseph in the Bible, as you know. Curiosity about the fourth century or so, curiosity in the church would get the best of it, and they begin to create and to write all of these apocryphal stories and gospels, not only about Joseph and about Mary, but about the birth of Jesus and the growing up years of Jesus. They invented these stories that are are pretty doubtful, but in the gospels that we do have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are some clues. And primarily, we're in Matthew. Matthew is the one that has the most to say about Joseph. And he tells us that there are at least four things about Joseph that we should meditate on. The first is, he was a tecton. What in the world is a tecton? Well, it's the word that we translate as carpenter. Primarily, a tecton was somebody that worked with their hands and they worked with hard substances, one of which was wood. The, the word architect is actually, in the original language that it comes from, architectone. You can say architectone, architect. Arch means the highest, the, the highest worker with wood or worker with high substances, hard substances was the job boss. He was the architect. And although, you know, I think it's proper to think of it as wood, doors had to be made, tables had to be made, chairs had to be made. There was also primarily stone as the building uh, product of Israel during the time of Jesus. In the north, it was basalt, it's kind of a black lava stone, very porous. In the south, it was limestone. During the time that Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, walking distance from Nazareth to the north was a town by the name of Sephorus. Sephorus was a Roman town. It was under construction at the time. It'd be very easy to think about Joseph as a tectone or a worker of hard substances making the daily walk to Sephorus, doing the work of the building, the, the, the masonry work, the, the milling of stones and putting them together and hauling them and then going back to Nazareth at the end of the day. And this was a trade that Joseph would have taught his son Jesus to do. In Matthew 13, Jesus is referred to as the son of the carpenter. But in Mark chapter 6, in verse 3, the question is, isn't this the carpenter in reference to Jesus? And so Joseph was one that had passed on his trade. And all of the, the qualities needed in a man or a successful tectone to, to, to make a living and, and to be successful and to do good work, all of that was passed on to the Christ. But Joseph wasn't only a tectone, he was also a tzaddik. A tzaddik. Tzaddik was the Hebrew way of saying a person was righteous. If you were to do a righteous act, or you were to do some act of piety, like the giving of alms, or, or, or doing something that would take care of a widow, you were said to have done zedekah. The word tzaddik and zedekah related, the words mean righteous. And Joseph is described in Matthew's gospel as being upright or being, up, up, being righteous. This is how Joseph was known in the village of Nazareth. In verse 19, Joseph, her husband, husband of Mary, being a, some of your translations say upright, being a righteous man. What that meant is that Joseph was a fellow who knew Torah. And not only did he know Torah, know the scripture, had probably all of it committed to memory, knew it by heart, he was also one who obeyed Torah. Joseph, Joseph's diet would have been kosher. He would not have eaten anything unclean. He would have only eaten clean foods. His most significant relationships in life would have been people that, like him, were faithful and devout people who understood Torah and they obeyed it. 
He would not have been the kind of guy that would have kept the carpentry shop open a couple of extra hours on, on a Sabbath in order to make a few more shekels. And if someone came into the synagogue and said they had seen Joseph sitting with a bunch of tax collectors telling dirty jokes and eating pork ribs, no one would have believed it in the least. But Joseph was also merciful. It's one of the things that has, has blessed me over the last couple of weeks is thinking about how in Joseph there was an understanding in, in being obedient to Torah, of being sadik, of being upright and righteous, that led him to be merciful. Joseph is engaged to Mary, which meant that he's legally married to her. Now, Jewish marriage was different from what we know in the Western world. A couple would go through a ceremony. They would be in front of the entire village as witnesses. They would be legally married at that point. But then the man would leave his wife in her father's home. He would go to his, his own father's house, and there he would uh, prepare a place for them to live. And maybe a room, maybe a couple of rooms, but it would be attached to his father's house. Sometimes it would take up to a year. But at the end of that year, when it was finished, when all of the preparations had been made, he would return to his wife's father's home and bring his wife into that house. Now, put yourself in Joseph's place. You're legally married to a woman, but that marriage has not yet been consummated. You're working hard to put together that house. She calls you on the cell phone. She says, I've got some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that I'm pregnant even though you and I have never been together. The good news is that it's a miracle baby and the dad is God. I know it sounds ridiculous, but there's a first time for everything. <laughs> hey, what do you do? What do you do? I mean, this is torture for Joseph. And one of the reasons it's torture for Joseph is that he really does love Mary. He loves Mary. Another reason it's torturous is because he's sadik, and he's upright, and he's righteous, and he's committed Torah to memory, and he knows that Deuteronomy chapter 22 in the Torah says that an adulteress and the man must be stoned to death. But Rome is on the scene, Reference John chapter 18. Rome does not allow capital punishment to be, to be committed, so that's out. So verse 19, Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace he had in mind to divorce her quietly. You know, there, there's, there's going to be no way that a small village like Nazareth, you know, you hear uh, people talk about in terms of people density and square cubits and things like that, the number of people that were in Nazareth. You hear a number as high as 200. I'm more of the opinion that it was probably right around 100, maybe 80, 90 to 100 people that are living in Nazareth at this time. There's no way in a small village like Nazareth that he could divorce Mary and keep it quiet in the sense of keeping it secret. I mean, just imagine what the grapevine is like for a, for a small community of people when we know that the grapevine is one of the fastest ways to communicate in the Western world in, in, in a nation like ours. People soon enough would see the pregnancy. What would they assume? Joseph, it's Sadiq. He, he's That's not him. They would assume adultery. 
To divorce her quietly, I think, probably means he is going to be lenient to her. He did not want to publicly disgrace her, so he would not accuse her publicly. And at the same time, he could remain sadiq, he could remain righteous in everyone's eyes. And this is where Joseph becomes tested. Think about a test that you took in school. A test reveals what is on the inside of you, and a test reveals what's not on the inside of you. Uh, a test reveals what you need to do or what you need to accomplish, what you need to learn, what you need to be transformed in, the changes that you need to, be, uh, need to have take place in your life in order to move to the next level. And so we read in the very next verse, verse 20 and 21, but, and what's that next word? After, I think it was Karl Barth that said that great theology is in the prepositions. But after he had considered this, considered what? Well, he was not going to publicly disgrace her. meant that he was probably going to divorce her, give her the, uh, the, the written certificate of divorce. But it was not going to be a, this public, blown-out thing where every, you know, she was going to be disgraced publicly in front of everybody. So after he had considered and come to this decision, an angel, here's an angel, of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus which probably in the Aramaic was Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. That word after is troublesome. Why does God wait until Joseph has made a decision before he sends an angel to Joseph in a dream to explain the situation. Why not send the angel immediately, send him on the day he finds out about it with the explanation of what has really happened to remove all doubts immediately and put him, his mind and his soul and his heart, his broken heart, to rest? Is it possible that anxiety removal Stress removal was not the number one goal God had for Joseph. Is it possible that Joseph was about to learn what it means to be humble and even to look foolish in order to be obedient to God? And for that to be the context in which we think and meditate on the coming of the Messiah into the world. Joseph's reputation took a hit. Over in Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, Jesus has, has gone back to Nazareth, and he's taught, and they're just, they're just amazed. They're just amazed at what it is he's saying. They ask the question, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? Where did he get this? And they took offense at him. 
You know, in the ancient world, it was a great, great insult for your children to be recognized through their mother even after the father's death. And even after years of, of Joseph being off the scene, perhaps dead for many, many years, years later, Joseph's reputation had not recovered. When we, when we think about the Christmas story and the nativity scene and, and we sing those carols, they're, they're, they all speak truth. But that first Christmas was, was a nightmare for Joseph. And his first experience of Christmas had at least three lessons for us. The first one is that what God sees in your heart is more important than what people see on the outside. At some point, we, we have to learn that lesson, and not just learn it with our head, but to learn it with our heart. That if all that we have in terms of our faith, and the only way that we have to express that faith is the facade, then that's going to run thin. And the thinnest place that it's going to run are in those places of, of adversity. You know, one of the things that God calls us to do is to go to the places of, of, of adversity, of, of, of trouble, of thorns and thistles. And what is part of the job of a disciple is through God's Spirit and through God's Word and through all of the different ways that God gives us to grow in the imitation of His Son Jesus, to become, as we've been calling it from C.S. Lewis, as we become many Christ, that is a righteousness that is from the inside and works its way out. You know, when Joseph encountered people on the paths and the streets of Nazareth, he probably saw a lot of disappointment because they remembered one time he was Sadiq. But it was probably all swept away when he looked down into the eyes of that little boy that he had named Yeshua. What God sees in your heart is more important than what people see on the outside. Number two, that following the will of God requires courage and humility. You know, it's sort of an ironic twist of meaning. For us, we, we think of, of all of the, warms, the warm fuzzies of the holiday season, and I'm not against it. I love that. One of my favorite things about coming home is, is seeing the way that Ellen decorated the house and spying red, white, and green M&Ms in that candy dish. It's great. Scott McKnight has written that Joseph and Mary knew what it was like to take up their cross and follow Jesus even before Jesus was born. In John 8, a woman is caught in a, in a scandal, adultery, brought to Jesus by a bunch of stone-toting Pharisees. They say, Jesus, we want to know if you're sadik. The law of Moses says this. Jesus says the one without sin cast the first stone. And as Jesus has compassion and as he has mercy on this woman that is caught in this terrible, terrible scandal, did he see the face of Joseph? And when Jesus tells a bunch of folk whose confidence before God was based on the righteousness that they generated themselves, their self-righteousness, and that they exalted themselves. 
And when Jesus said that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, did he see the face of Joseph? And then finally, there's more to righteousness than following the rules. There is more to righteousness than following the rules. Following the commands of God, absolutely important. But maybe righteousness is more than what we typically think. Psalm 71 verse 19 says, Your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You have done great things. Who is like you, God? The righteousness of God is seen in Jesus who in love humbled himself by becoming a man. The righteousness of God is in Jesus in love humbling himself to become a man, seeing his own righteousness wrongly and unjustly trashed and his reputation demolished because of the way that he loves I think that God still calls His people to humble themselves and to go into difficult times for the sake of His love for people. There's not much at all that is said about the relationship between Joseph and Jesus. You know that Joseph was a concerned father when, when uh, they have to go back to Jerusalem after they've been there for the feast or heading back to Nazareth. And Mary and Joseph realize that, well, you know, He's not among the cousins. He's not among the entourage from Nazareth. He's not among you know, the group of people that we're traveling with. They have to go back, and for three days they're looking for him frantically only to find him. Joseph was a concerned father. Joseph passed on his trade. But I think that Jesus grew up in a place where people understood that when you obeyed the will of God, because God is all there is, if, if God wanted you to live in a cardboard box, that's what you do. But he grew up in a context that was reinforced by a father and a mother who said the most important thing is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength in order for you to love people the right way. And it's this Christ in all of these stories when he talked about, uh, when he talked about uh, turning the other cheek when he talked about going the extra mile, when he, when he talked about being persecuted for righteousness' sake, did he have the picture of Joseph's face in his mind's eye? We're going to sing a song of praise right now for the greatness of the Christ and the greatness of the Incarnation and the greatness of the Gospel and the greatness of what it is that God does in human lives. And during that time, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are some needs that you have right now that need to be prayed about or there are some, some ways that our church can minister to you, we invite you to, to come down to the front and to talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise this God together. When my 